This is Swordplay. I'm Nick Perez. Alex, Jesse Duplantis wants $54 million to purchase a private jet so he can fly around the world without refueling. How much have you donated to the cause? Well, Nick, I just sent Jesse a pair of sandals and a walking stick, and I also promised to rent him a donkey if he's about to be crucified, although that might sound too uncomfortable for him. Oh, man. You know what I could do with $54 million? That's like 9 million trips to Starbucks. I mean, (laughs) just unreal. The article, by the way, also said that um, fellow televangelist Kenneth Copeland bought recently a Gulfstream jet for $34 million. So I think Jesse's got a little, little bit of the envies going on here. Oh, man. Well, this is another episode of Swordplay. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I'm Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. And on this episode of Swordplay, Titus chapter 1. The book of Titus. If you haven't read the book of Titus, go ahead and push the pause button and at least read chapter 1. Read it through once, twice, maybe three times, and then come back. And we're going to dig into some questions that may have come across your mind or may have not come across your mind, but important questions nonetheless. Let's see what we can find out in Titus chapter 1. Nick, where do we start? Well, let's start with the very first word, Paul. Um, Who is Paul? Hmm... Well, Paul, slave of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Well, there's only one apostle of Christ Jesus named Paul that I know of. He's the one that was Saul in the book of Acts and converted on the road to Damascus. What say you, Nick? Man, there's just there's so much. Volumes have been written. Um, and that's we're just touching the writings of N.T. Wright. And then there's other volumes. That, there's so much that's been written about Paul and... Um, F.F. Bruce has a book. I pulled it off my shelf. It's a 500-pager called Paul, Apostle, the Heart Set Free. And, I mean, Paul is, he, he wrote half the New Testament. He's, uh, you open up the Bible to the New Testament, and just about every, any letter that you read is going to be from him. There are others, of course, mm-hmm. First, Second Peter and all that. But, yeah, this this is Paul. The apostle. It's interesting that he introduces himself here first as a literally a slave of God. Right. That he lost. Yeah, he appeals uh, first and foremost to himself as a slave, and those appeals that he makes in this epistle should be read through that lens: a slave to another slave, and then second, he's an apostle of Christ. He doesn't lean on that apostolic. Um, authority that he could, but instead he appeals as a servant. I wonder, Nick, if he even has um, some intention in that so as to not undermine uh, the, lettuce, the letter to Titus, because Titus is, is going to appoint elders, and this is Titus's job. So maybe Paul is saying, hey, Titus is the guy. He's the one I left there for you. Uh, I'm just another slave. I'm also an apostle, but this is his job. Listen to him. What are your thoughts? No, I think that's right. I think that's that's right. He's um, he's on Titus' side. He's he's on the side of this young evangelist. He calls him. Well, we're going to talk about who Titus is in a moment. But my true child in a common faith. So there's obviously some uh, chords of affection there between 
Paul and Titus. And so speaking of Titus, we might as well deal with who is Titus. Um, verse 4, to Titus, my true child in the common faith. Um, who is Titus? Well, Titus, uh, that's a Greek name, right? So he's probably a Gentile Christian. Um, you know, Titus, like you said, he was called a true child in the faith of Paul. Uh, that's that's conversion language. You may have had uh, a conversion uh, made, made of Titus by, by this preaching and teaching, uh, maybe even baptized by the hands of Paul. Who knows? But obviously this uh, young man had a lot of uh, trust and, and respect uh, put upon him by Paul. Uh, apparently, he was a member of the Corinthian congregation. If you remember in 1 Corinthians, Titus is put in charge of collecting the money for the Jerusalem church for the famine that was uh, going to hit there. So Titus was a traveling companion of Paul from time to time. He sent him to work in the church in Crete. Uh, he sent him to work uh, in Dalmatia. Um, I can't remember where else. Did Paul send Titus anywhere else? I only found Dalmatia and Crete as well, as well as the Corinthian connection. Um, but yeah, frequent... Frequent flyer with Paul, all right? They were uh, constant traveling companions, it would seem. I did find, um, I think this is right, his name means honorable. Hmm. And so I don't know if that sheds any more light on this guy's character. But, yeah, he was he was definitely a faithful brother. He was someone who was trusted not just by Paul but by uh, other Christians as well. He wasn't going to take advantage of anybody. And so I think that's why they would put him in charge of say, I don't know, collecting money for another church elsewhere. So, <clears throat> Sure. I always like taking a look at the entourage that Paul often had with him. You know, there are times where he was by himself, but I would venture to guess that most of the time he, he did have an entourage of fellow disciples going with him from place to place. So it's always interesting to, to dig deeper into who, who was with him, who knew him, who got to share in the, the preaching and in the persecution. Now, Nick... As we go through the letter, it talks about uh, the audience as being the chosen of God. Now, this sounds like election language, and yet most people, when they hear the word election and when they hear chosen, they only see it through the lens of Calvinism, the predestination idea. Is that is really is that really the only necessary inference here, Nick, or is there something else that we can uh, interpret this through. Yeah, so um, we're that's right at the very beginning, verse one, uh, right after Paul introduces himself. He says, "For the sake of the faith of God's elect um, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness." And yeah, as soon as we start cracking open this chestnut, this old chestnut of election and uh, being chosen by God, um, there are some who hijack it and. Uh, take it someplace that I don't know is is uh, the right place to take it. But uh, whenever whenever uh, we talk about election and choosing, God's choosing, um, there's a text which we usually go to, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, where um, election and calling are put together. Um, in a very short span where Paul writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits 
to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And so Paul goes on to say that election took place when they were called uh, through the gospel. He says in verse 14, "...to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ." So these twin doctrines are so closely connected, in fact, that the Apostle Peter mentions them in a single verse. He calls Christians to confirm your calling and election. And so the way that I've taught it is the moment that I choose God or anyone chooses God, uh, whenever they, to use the language of Paul here again in Titus 1 verse 1, whenever a person puts their faith in God and thereby chooses God, at that same moment is when God chose me from eternity because, um, again, he he's stands outside of time, as it were, as the ever-present Yahweh, uh, the ever-present one, the always one who is to be. So, um, yeah, it's it's a fun little fun little thing to spin out on here yeah. with this this choosing. What do you what do you say? I always like to um, explain it in the paradigm of corporate election. You know, you go through the Old Testament, and a lot of things that are said to Israel is said to Israel as a whole. It applies to individuals, but really they had this collective identity known as Israel, and they could even refer to that identity in the singular form. And I think that collective identity is carried over into the church of the New Testament. And so when it starts talking about the church being the chosen and the elect of God, I try to explain that as the arena in which God has already chosen to save people. So if you want to step inside that arena, you are now inside the designated area of election that God had already outlined and chose before the foundation of the world. Hmm. That's good stuff. Yeah, so I, I try to put it that way, but, you know, depending on where you're coming from and what you've heard uh, in your faith journey, um, you know, it's hard to see things from different perspectives sometimes. So hmm. definitely going to be a continuing debate. Well, let's talk about, uh, since we're kind of talking about God and what he does from eternity, verse 2 um, talks about uh, uh, the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised, my English standard says, before the ages began. Oh, wow. Yeah. My New American standard says promised long ages ago. Right. And the New American standard that I looked at, there was a footnote that says before times eternal. Uh-huh. And uh, so when did God promise eternal life long ages ago? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, maybe we'll have a couple of different answers, but the hang-up for me, so here's here's where I get stuck, is if you say that this is before anything was written in Scripture, before the storyline of uh, Genesis, then what promise do we have that was said to be given or mentioned or in the mind of God before that story began? And so it's that word promise that I get hung up on. So when I see the word promise... 
my mind goes, there has to be a connection to something that was promised that they knew about that's in the word. And so I go to things like maybe it's the seed promise, the 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 uh, descendants of the, the woman uh, becoming Christ, crushing the seed of the serpent. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's the, the promise of that carried out in Abraham. I'll make your descendants like the stars. Uh, I will bless the whole world through you. Uh, Paul will definitely pick up on that in Galatians 3, saying Christ is the seed. So my mind goes towards one of those promises. This is, in my mind, going back to the seed promise to redeem mankind to save the world through Christ Jesus, promise given through Abraham, most often quoted, uh, carried through through Isaac, Jacob, uh, all the way to the, to the kingly promise of David and one of his descendants always sitting on the throne and reigning. So... I, I lean towards that, but there are other perspectives, Nick. Like, what else would there be? So you're leaning toward, like, an idiomatic understanding of this. Like, what Paul is saying is this was a long time ago. Right. Long okay. ages, as in, like, um, you know, we sometimes break up biblical history into dispensations. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean we're dispensationalists, but <laughs> we we look at it sometimes that way. Like, oh, here's the pre-flood days, the antediluvian days. Here's the patriarchal days. Here, here's the uh, kingly, you know, days. And here's the intertestament uh, second temple days. And then here's the, the church age, the New Testament days. So those might be what they're calling ages. Yeah, it's a <clears throat> it's a, an interesting little phrase here. Um the NIV translates it before the beginning of time. <laughs> uh, so they're kind of showing their hand right at the right, beginning. Right. Um, and I, I'm probably going to lean toward that. I, I can see the idiomatic expression, um, but I, I tend to lean toward um, before time began. Sure. So for us linear time-bound creatures, this is in eternity past... God, and to borrow the language of the writer of Hebrews, he swore by himself um, that mankind would have the hope of eternal life. And uh, so... So you're taking the pre-Genesis 1-1. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that. I mean, the the word is eternal. Um, that's, That's the nature of the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but... My word will no, not never pass away. Bad English, good Greek, but that's what uh, Jesus says in the Gospels. So that's where, um, that's kind of where I land with with that promise. Um, sure, he, sure. He s- swore by himself. He makes a promise to himself, and then and then history becomes the the revelation of that. And so you know, you can uh, all the things that you mentioned about the the ages and the genealogies and. Uh, the dispensations and all that, I think, um, are the unveiling of that promise that he made to himself concerning eternal life. And I'll be honest with you, you know, uh, I've revealed my hand in past episodes that I don't really lean towards the God is timeless view. Right. Um, I, I see eternal as fitting a different paradigm. He doesn't have a beginning and he'll never have an end. Uh, we have a beginning so we're not eternal, but we have eternal life because we'll never have an end through life in Christ Jesus. Um, but I don't separate that from existing in time. So, you know, that's that's my hand, and that's uh, one of those bigger umbrellas that will filter into uh, 
different interpretations and doctrines. Well, let's uh, let's really dive in here, <laughs> um, and and press forward here to. That was verse, a warm up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Verses five and what six, seven, eight, nine, five through nine. Right. Where Paul starts talking about elders and the appointment of elders. And Paul writes in verse 5, This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So uh, let's start here. Is it biblical for preachers, ministers, to appoint elders. Well, Nick, it, it looks that way to me. Um, I don't think it has to be too complicated. If you want to dive into this and say, well, what kind of process does the evangelist use to make that appointment? Well, it doesn't say. It doesn't mm-hmm. say what kind of process he uses. Does he make the decisions himself? Does he take a vote? You know, Does he cast lots? Well, we don't know. We don't know the process he used. We just know that Paul said that he was to get that job done. And I know that this can be even something abused uh, by evangelists, as in like, I appointed you, therefore I'm not under your authority. Mm. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Hold on just a second there. Um, No, that's not true. You are still under the, the authority of the eldership within that congregation, even if you helped to bring about that eldership in place. Because the eldership ultimately is, is held to uh, the the same, if not a higher standard, as everyone else. It's not as if they can't be wrong or corrected or rebuked. We know that from, from is it First Timothy 5, where yeah. Paul says, um, don't be too quick to rebuke an elder and um, don't be too quick to lay hands on him. So I would say, yeah, I think I think it is biblical for preachers, ministers, evangelists to appoint elders. Um at least, at least, at the very least, when there are no elders in place, you could definitely say that. Uh, I don't know. What are some of your thoughts, Nick? It obviously is a biblical way. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Um, he tells Paul tells Titus to do the appointing. Now, like you said, what does it look like? You know, is is it Titus doing the actual appointing, or is it kind of just leading the process? And what's interesting about this um, kind of this church organization um, paradigm is that you actually don't have a set-in-stone process by which this is the way to do it and the only way to do it. Um, And in fact, uh, if we want a different kind of paradigm to look at, Acts 6 um, gives us another way of appointing leaders in uh, the congregation with the the selection of the seven there who are going to serve and... um, I think that's your first appointment of deacons. And it was the apostles saying to the church, look out among yourselves and select men that look like this, and they do. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting to me, you know, we're we're part of the Restoration Movement, part of the, the Churches of Christ, and we we claim to desire to restore simple New Testament Christianity and... Um, Yet, when it comes to stuff like this, I think we've I think we have tended to shy away from this kind of ministerial appointment process because 
we're afraid. It's yeah. a fear-driven thing. We're afraid of this centralization of power or the centralization of authority. One man with all the power, kind of like what you talked about, who can serve, who can't serve, and kind of a, a diatrophies type yeah. scenario. But yeah. um, that, of course, is ungodly leadership, and that isn't what the, the scriptures hold up as uh, a true model of leadership. But uh, yeah, there's... There's a lot of fear, I think, that drives some church policies these days, but that's that's my opinion, biblically informed, but my opinion nevertheless. <laughs> well, I like how you mentioned diatrophies. I didn't even think of that. The fact that you can look to that example shows you that there was a risk to this model, that it could be abused, it could be taken the wrong direction, and yet Paul still says, do it this way even in the midst of a diatrophies. And if a diatrophies pops up, then a diatrophies needs to be rebuked and taken mm. care of. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think fear can sort of influence policy and make us shy away from certain verses or certain interpretations. And, uh, you know, that's something to wrestle with for sure. Now, Nick, let me tell you where I scratch my head. Uh, yeah. It's in the same verse, and he says, "'Appoint elders in every city as I directed you.'" And if I'm just reading straight through that, it almost makes it sound like you have a set of elders over an entire city. And I'm like, wait a second, is that right? Because I don't know. I, I've always thought it's just over a congregation. What do you think? Well, especially, um, again, in, in Churches of Christ, where we have a strong sense of church autonomy, self-governance, um, that... This really, um, there's a there's a tension here that uh, I know we've worked to uh, try and explain it a certain way. But when you look at the text and what it what it literally says, Titus was to go city by city appointing elders, hmm. which is is just it's fast. In this case, it seems like on Crete there were elders over. An entire city. Now, what that probably means, what it probably looked like, was um, they they were probably just it was just a small house church um, in each city at the time. And so, when you appoint an elder over one little house church like that, that's the church for the city, as it were. Yeah. Of course, where that breaks down is if there were more than one house church <laughs> in a in a right. given city, which right. could have been the which could have been the case in which case yeah it seems like these if we want to use the the language of today of of congregations um there was there would have been open fellowship and apparently elders over multiple congregations um i'll share this when i was in arizona as an associate minister with the church there uh we had one uh elder in Arizona, we had snowbirds, and that meant that there were uh, older, retired members of the church who would come down uh, during the winter and live during the relatively mild winter in Arizona. But then once it started creeping up to triple-digit heat, they'd, they'd flock north. Yeah, um, back to, to their, Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Minnesota, Michigan, and, and those kind of milder climates during the summer. One of our elders was a snowbird. And I don't, I don't remember him serving as an elder in Arizona and in Michigan, where um, he would go and live half the year. 
Um, but uh, it was just interesting, just the dynamic that that kind of created where we had one elder who was only there half the time. Um, I don't know. It's it's interesting the, the ways that we kind of work through stuff um, in order to kind of justify our practices. But then when it actually comes out to the practice, it kind of looks different. But anyway. Sure. That's... Well, and it, could we be dealing with a uh, a distinction between reference and location? In other words, um, let's say you have a set of elders that shepherd the flock among them at their congregation. That's sort of one way of taking that verse when, uh, uh, where is that verse where it says, shepherd the flock among you? First Peter chapter 5. That's right, that's right. And so could it be a reference to where if you were to look at the eldership that's over each congregation in an entire city, those elders collectively would be known as the elders of that city. And so you don't necessarily have them going congregation to congregation. Um, you have them shepherding the flock among them, but collectively they are the elders of that city. Is that a possibility here? It could have been. It could have been. Um, at the same time, though, I think there was a lot more, um, a lot more fellowship that was going on in the first century church than I think what we we have now. And it and it's sure. because our our view of autonomy has kind of restricted us, I believe, so that it kind of ends up as an isolationist perspective, and and I I don't think that's I don't think that's right. I I emphatically disagree with that isolationist position. I think one of the reasons that the church struggles like it does is because of the lack of um, that that sharing that should take place where. We should be we should be free and willing to ask uh, the elders here at Davis Park, for example, should be willing to uh, should be free and willing to go and ask other shepherds of other congregations, hey, what we have this particular situation. What would you guys do here? I think there's collective wisdom there. And sure. I'm not saying that nobody does that to overgeneralize, but I think in a lot of places that's it, that kind of thinking is so foreign that it's just they wouldn't do it. Yeah, maybe instead of having a like a monthly local preachers meeting, they should have a monthly elders meeting between the congregations. Or and, uh, and it yeah, and it'd be a time of sharing, saying, "Look, this is yeah. what this is what we're what we've come up with, come up against. This is one of the struggles we're having." Can we get some input? Where's what's the collective wisdom there look like? I think there's strength in that. Well, I think those are some good ideas, something to think about for sure. Now, uh, if that wasn't confusing enough or hard enough to get through, uh, we're going to get into the qualifications for these elders, and this is going to bring about uh, innumerable questions. I mean, the the questions never stop with this, and so we we got a few here that uh, just right off the bat. He says, uh, you got to be a husband of one wife. So this phrase, one wife, uh, we can debate all day about this. What does one wife mean? Is this talking about um, marriage, divorce, and remarriage? Like you you can't have remarried or you can't have divorced and remarried and then be an elder? Or is this talking about polygamy? Is it talking about you can't have more than one wife at a time 
as in condemning polygamy, you know, somebody saying, well, hey, Jacob had two wives and, and 12 sons. <laughs> so I, I don't know what's, yeah. what's going on here. Where, when I, in, in my life, whenever I've seen an elder selection process take place, and I've been a part of them in several congregations, it is usually this qualification, if we want to use that language, characteristic, what have you, is usually this and um, the next one, the believing children one, which are the sticking points. Mm. Um, and so it's interesting because that's two of the three domestic qualities that a man is to have. The third is he's got to manage his household well. We don't ever really talk about that, right? Yeah, what does that um, mean? Yeah. So, um, and so that, that one's um, over in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. But right. um, so we, we hyper focus on this one. And it's probably because it's a very obvious one, right? Uh, does a man, is he, and, and this is how I interpret it, what it literally says, meas gunaikos andra in the original, it literally means a one-woman man. And he, so that means he has devoted himself to his wife and to her only. So I think this would uh, disqualify a polygamist. Um, and in fact, there's historical precedent here, especially for, well, uh, Ephesus in First Timothy chapter 3, but Crete as well. They're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, not exactly <laughs> bastions of moral purity. But um, uh, in the first century, chances are a man would have, he'd be a three-woman man. He'd have his wife, he'd have uh, the slave girl, and then he would have the temple prostitutes. And so what Paul, well, the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying is no more of this. Hmm. That is not God's ideal. God's ideal is uh, monogamy. So you're not going to be a flirt. You're not going to be a, <clears throat> excuse me, polygamist. Um, and okay, so the divorce one, that was, that's a tough one. Um, I'm almost, I'm at a place right now today, okay, so this this could change. But May, May 30th, 2018. This is where I'm at with it is I think it's a case-by-case case thing um, where um, if a man is divorced but then remarries and it's for, um, I don't even know, I don't want to say biblical reasons. I just don't like the biblical dragging the Bible here in for divorce, but just... Um, legitimate reasons um he uh, for example maybe there's a situation where a man um his wife abandoned him or uh cheated on him or something like that and they end up getting a divorce sometime later he gets remarried uh, i'm not going to double clutch on that one, as much as I would say if a guy was out, you know, freewheeling about and just, you know, kind of messing around on, uh, on, with another woman on his wife, and I think that guy's got some serious character flaws. He certainly doesn't, you know, he got the above reproach even before this. I don't think he'd call it. Anyway, that's where I'm at on this. What say you, Alex? 
Uh, for me, this raises even another question, and that is, are these qualifications, um, the qualifications for the super Christian, the above and beyond Christian, and those are the guys we want to be as elders, or are these qualifications really sort of a standard Christian uh, set of morals that all Christians should be meeting, but just in case they aren't, you want to make sure that you're not going to put them into a position of leadership or eldership. And uh, if you say the the former, that uh, you know this is only for the, the super Christians who have to meet all these qualifications, well, then you're kind of saying it's okay for the guy who doesn't want to be an elder to be a polygamist. <laughs> and to argue otherwise, you'd have to do some gymnastics, you know, bring in other stuff and say, well, this, this, this. And it's like, yeah. But again, what are the implications of saying that these are super Christian standards for only a select certain who are striving to attain a, a leadership position? She's like, ah, I don't know. I think, like you said, Crete has a reputation of questionable character. So you do want to make sure that uh, the standard set of Christian virtue and moral is understood so that you're not putting somebody who... Uh, isn't quite mature enough yet hasn't quite shed the uh, the cretan lifestyle yet uh you make sure you're not putting them into a position of power right away so um as far as the marriage divorce and remarriage stuff like uh we could do we could do uh 10 episodes on that you know <laughs> so um you, you bring up a good point about because these are these are qualifications for elders elders that an elder is literally an older man right and so this is i think the understanding was every man is heading toward becoming an older man so the uh the role of being a shepherd the role of being a bishop that's yours to lose all right and you'll lose it if you're fooling around on your wife or a polygamist or um you know, just fill in the blank, as it were, when it comes to to all these um, qualities here. So, <clears throat> well, not to uh, harp on just one qualification for too long. Um, you said, you know, elder means older man. If these are older men, then how old are their children? When it says they got to have believing children, uh, what age range are we talking about? Are we talking about an old guy who still has uh, little ones uh, singing? Uh, there's a boat in the Sea of Galilee, or are we talking about an old man who has already raised uh, adult children, and now you're seeing the fruit of their labor to see, okay, how do his, how did he do? How are his children acting? Uh, what are your thoughts, Nick? Yeah, so, and I've got a footnote on mine that says his children are faithful. Um, in in the text, it says his children are believers. Um, I mean, it's it's a good question. Um, how old are they? Uh, and and f- what is that phrase, faithful or believers, what does that mean? Does it mean they all have to believe in God? What if one of his kids grows up and is not a believer in God? And, and so it goes. Um, and I think it's interesting, this is connected in the First Timothy passage with he must manage his own household well, and... Um, and I think that's that's uh, that that gets factored into this um, discussion as well. He he oversees his home in a way that is good and proper, and um, 
his children are obedient are um they 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 listen to him he's he's um they're faithful so does, i don't know if, yeah go ahead does head of household mean they have to be under the same roof together which would imply maybe younger children or i guess you know sometimes older uh, adult children get married and live with their parents especially maybe in a different culture in a different time i know in other countries that still happens or could head of household like be referring to his uh, role as patriarch like you have a family to tend to even if they're adults and they have their families um you know what i'm saying no i hear you and probably in that cult that culture that cultural context it would have been the the former although it probably could have been the latter as well but the uh, that they live under his roof and maybe that okay maybe that's more of our cultural context um that they live under his roof and and so as long as they're kind of this this mentality of as long as you're under my roof these are the rules and i want you to abide by them and and i know there's a whole school of thought that says of course they need to be believers they need to be christians and if they're not christians you don't qualify and uh i hear you <laughs> but at the same time you know how there are so many factors into why a person doesn't become a christian um can a can a can a father so frustrate his children that they never want to be part of the lord's body yes but if there's a man who did all that he could in order to uh, provide his children with the best possible opportunity to hear about Christ and become a Christian, and they still went astray, listen, God, all of his children have gone astray, okay? So um, if we want to you know, try and tack these on as, as kind of hard, fast rules that... Uh, it has to be this way, and and we don't really uh, allow much grace into the picture. I think we run into a, a whole bunch of problems. There's not going to be very many elders um, at the end of the day, I guess. Well, and it's perhaps even a harder question for us in this country at this time because, uh, from what I can see, from what I've from what I've read, and the numbers, I mean, the family family unit uh, has been under attack for quite a while. You have this dramatic rise in divorce. You have these uh, breakdowns in the family unit, and that really begins to, yeah, if you're going to interpret it in, in one way, you're going to narrow the pool for qualifying elders. Now, if that's the case, uh, and that's, but that's, you know, if this really is the qualification, then so be it. But this is why we wrestle with it. It's because our context, our cultural context, makes it difficult for us to wrestle with it. And, uh, where I lean right now, May 30th, 2018, uh, I haven't been a part of any elder, you know, appointing process. My leaning would be, if this is an older man, then he has adult children. And if his adult children are not faithful, then his attention cannot be uh, given at such a high level to the church, because that's required of an elder. It takes a lot of time and attention and care. He's got to take that time and attention and put it towards his unbelieving adult children. He's got to make amends where he can make amends. When it comes down to it, none of us have a video recording of every second of parenting ever done by a father in the church. So we don't really know what happened in that house. We don't know what happened in that child's life. 
So I would say, you know, if it means we don't have as many qualified elders, but it means that these older men are going to go back and try to convert and talk to and care towards their unbelieving adult children, then that's maybe the better path to take. I would rather have no elders and fathers who are trying to still reach and care for and make amends with their children. So what do you think about that, Nick? Uh, that makes sense to me. Um, and that's a good point about the this being an older man, he would have older children. So, um, well, do we want to broach um, not a drunkard or not addicted to much wine? Um <laughs> I mean, there's so many here. We're having to skip over several. This is verse 7, um, where he talks about not addicted to wine or uh, not a drunkard. Does that assume moderation, Alex? You know what? Um, right now, I would probably say that it does not assume moderation, but we should actually we should save this for either our Timothy podcast or do like a special topical podcast, because I think we could talk a good while on the two sides of the of the alcohol debate. That sounds fair to me. Tune in next time. No. <laughs> <laughs> then let's uh, let's talk about the the differences in the lists here. Um, each list from First Timothy three and Titus one has um, about fifteen different uh, qualities here, and there is some overlap um, where they're verbatim the exact same. Others they're slightly different. Um, what do you think are what do you think are some of the reasons or a reason why these lists differ from one another? Sure. Well, I've seen two different approaches to this. Uh, the first approach says the lists differ because you're speaking to a different audience. They have different uh, maybe hangups or temptations uh, that they're dealing with. And so this is just Paul's way of saying like, hey, I know you guys struggle with these things specifically. And so I want to make sure that the elders that are going to be in this church have overcome these temptations. And so when viewed that way, uh, that's sort of the non-collective view. Um, you take each set on its own. Um, the collective view says, well, hold on a second, you know, we have four Gospels, and when we tell the story of Jesus and his parables, we draw from all four Gospels. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't all of a sudden um, get rid of baptism because we don't hear it talked about in the same way in Luke and John as it is in Matthew and Mark. So we take a collective view. So with the qualifications for elders, we should take both lists, add them together, and have a collective view. And I could see the pros and cons to either perspective, but I guess for me, uh, I probably have more of a better safe than sorry mindset. You know, I, I would take the collective view. If you're going to be an elder, you should meet the qualifications on both lists put together. Um, but to be fair, does the people that Timothy's talking to and the people that Titus is talking to, um, do they know that there's a collective list? <laughs> I don't know. Right. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Nick? I uh, know I, they probably didn't, <laughs> at least early on. I mean, eventually, you know, after a couple decades, um, from when Paul writes these, you start seeing guys collecting the documents, but, um, yeah, at first, when this was hot off the presses and read in, in uh, Crete, they probably didn't know about First Timothy 3. And so 
um, at least for the original context. I mean, you know, we obviously do, and so I think it's it's fair and good for us to take a collective approach to it. But initially, I think it would have been just different churches, different places, different cir- uh, circumstances. And so Paul emphasizes um, certain qualities that would uh, speak into that culture sure. um, uh, better than, than maybe, um, you know, what, what he says to, to Timothy in Ephesus. So, um, yeah, you're right. I think there's pros and cons to each. Um, so, And maybe it doesn't have to be an either-or, you know. Like you said, it could be they would have at least stuck with the list given to them initially, and perhaps as the church grew and spread and the letters circulated— Maybe it was natural for them to take on more of a collective view. It's hard, hard to say. It is. It is. All right, let's let's uh, <clears throat> turn our attention to the final few verses here, verses ten through sixteen. Yes. And let's talk about the um, verse ten. Paul references the circumcision party. Um, who are these guys? How are they upsetting families, as Paul says there in verse 11? Um, why would people pay these guys? They're, they're getting some kind of shameful gain by what they teach. What's going on here, Alex? Uh, that's a really good question. I've debated this back and forth in my own mind, and to me I see two trajectories here. The first one is these are genuine Christians with a Jewish background who are Uh, legitimately concerned that Gentiles who are not circumcised are not legitimate Christians. They're not legitimate Mm -hmm. members of God's kingdom. And so they push hard for it, and they go down a uh, path of of pride and arrogance that leads to other sinful activities because of that path that they're trying to push so hard for. And that's why Paul has to work so hard to show them that this is not— harmonious with the gospel and he he has this problem that he addresses in a lot of his letters a lot of his letters are about this group that's causing trouble a lot of his um work dealt with this problem but the the other trajectory says you know what these guys could very well be fake christians these could be pseudo christians these could be guys who the unbelieving jews sent in as spies and saboteurs in order to get into the church and to break it down and to divide it and to cause trouble. And uh, I don't know, I, I kind of lean towards that because of just how harshly that Paul speaks about these guys. I don't think Paul would speak about faithful Christians in this way. I think he would speak about false teachers in this way. Um, I think he would speak about uh, these sort of snakes who sort of deceive and creep in uh, this this stuff that's, that he calls these circumcision people, I mean, it reminds me of the same people written about in Jude and in Second mm-hmm. Peter 2. So it's got a lot of same overtones there. Uh, what do you think, Nick? I'd lean toward the, the Jewish converts to Christianity view, the, the one that you broke down there at the first. Sure, sure. Um, Paul regularly and vigorously opposed them throughout his ministry. Um, and so then, um, to the latter group, uh, that you presented there, um, kind of a pseudo Christian, um, organization bent on, uh, running amok in the church. Um, 
my question back would be, um, what do you do with like verse 13, where he says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith? Yeah, that's a head scratcher because I couldn't quite figure out who is them that he's rebuking. Is this ah. is this the people in the church who are, you know, real faithful Christians, but they're kind of being won over by this? They're being uh, swayed, sort of how uh, Jude talks about, you know, to some show mercy and to some uh, try to pull out from the fire, but be careful. Um, so, or is he saying, no, rebuke these uh, circumcision Christians so that they'll stop going off the deep end. I know it could go either way, but I, I had a hard time figuring out who's them that need the rebuke. Because my question is, verse 16 says, they profess to know God, but by their uh. deeds, they deny him being detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. I mean, that's not the way Paul talks to, um, wayward Christians, uh, He's more persuasive than that. This is the way he talks to uh, people he believes are are really uh, genuinely bad guys. So, I don't know. What do you think about verse sixteen? It's a good point. Yeah, that's uh, <clears throat> that's a. It it sounds like you're right. It sounds like this is not. Um, these are not Christians. They're not brothers and sisters because. Or even like, you know, we, we use the, sometimes we use the language of uh, erring brothers and sisters, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. That's, yeah, they, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. That uh, doesn't sound, of course. The wolf in sheep's again, clothing. It's the fruit, it's the tree without fruit. <laughs> but then I'm reminded of what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, where he calls them, you know, poor, blind, naked, pitiable, all that. Yeah, that's true. Not exactly... You know, I once was blind, and now I'm blind. You know, that's... <laughs> so... Yeah, that's true. And both groups existed, I think. So yeah. both both groups were existed in the church. And so the question is, is this addressing both groups or one of the groups? And um, yeah, I, I guess I lean towards the, the pseudo-Christian path, but uh, he, could, he could have a little bit of both going in here, especially like you said with verse 13. Well, what about uh, the sordid gain uh, and upsetting whole families? I mean, it, to me, I wonder, like, what are they doing? Like, it's one thing to, to say this false doctrine, but what what are they doing that's like, you're getting money from people? Like, are you stealing? Are you swindling? Are you uh, deceiving? What's going on here? It's got to be... these. These were probably the Jesse Duplantis's and Kenneth Copeland's of their day. Oh, man. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, you got whole mega churches that are going to give to their cause. Um, Jesse Duplantis, he's going to get his $54 million. He's going to, he's going to get it off of the uh, the collections, the donations from the people of his church there in Louisiana. And so it, I, it's got to be like a, a similar thing, you know, that was going on back then. It was um, uh, you had these whether they were the the Jewish converts or some other pseudo-Christian organization, they were smooth talkers, fast talkers, and they were able to convince these families, you got to give to my cause, and it's going to... I'm teaching the truth here, mm. and you don't want to be opposed to God's man, right? So pony up the dough, as it were. It's crazy. It's crazy to think about. Some things never change. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Well, Nick, uh, do you want to talk about Epimenides? Because uh, I, I do. All right. This guy, who, this guy's a trip, man. Who is Epimenides, and why am I asking you that question? So verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This is a quotation. Guys a lot smarter than me have figured out that this is from um, a philosopher, a 6th century B.C. philosopher from Crete named Epimenides. He's an interesting guy because he was recognized by some, and most notably by Plato, who called him inspired of the gods, um, that they they saw him as a prophet. And he had predicted the Persian War about a decade before it happened. Whoa. Um, yeah, so, and there were some other things, like, you know why, you know why there was a, an altar uh, or a shrine to the unknown god in Athens? Uh-huh. It's be- because Epimenides. Um, he had told them in Athens to, to sacrifice to a, a certain god, and when they did, things went well, and so they erected that that idol to the unknown god because of Epimenides. Oh, so I didn't know that. Yeah, he's the guy who said this. Cretans are always liars, which it's interesting because it's kind of a self contradiction. All Cretans are liars. Um, Epimenides, he was a Cretan, <laughs> and so that means he must be a liar. But that would mean that all Cretans aren't liars because we're taking him as. At his word, which means he must be speaking truth, and on it goes. So it's a self-contradiction <laughs> thing. But he was regarded as one of the seven wise men of the ancient world. It included the likes of Yaboys, Solon of Athens, and Thales of Miletus. So he was smart, smart cat. Wow. The sense that Paul is talking about here when he says a prophet of their own, it seems that Paul is saying he was considered a prophet by them. He was considered a spokesman for God or the gods by them, by the Cretans themselves. Sure. And so he he takes that and plugs it in here in order to speak right into their context. And that's fascinating because I think it's helpful for us today, especially as as preachers and teachers of the Word of God, that, you know, sometimes there's stuff in culture that may be beneficial. There's truth to it. One of our own prophets has said this, and then we get to, we get to um, speak truth into our particular given culture, and then um, um, really hit another gear and take off when we say, and by the way, here's God's word, <laughs> um, wow. which is even greater than that. So, Well, there you go, folks. Epimenides, something you may have not known before. Yeah, boy, Epimenides. Here you go. <clears throat> well, Nick, I think this brings us to our tough text of the day. That's right, tough text. Our tough text of the day is verse 14. He says, Don't pay attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. What are these Jewish fables or myths, uh, these genealogies? You have similar language in First Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Uh, what are these things that Paul says don't have anything to do with them? Yeah, so there are a number of ideas about this. Um, there's the view that this was kind of a, a mingling of religions, okay, where you had Jewish elements, you had Gnostic elements, you had Christian elements that all went into the melting pot, as it were, 
Sure. So that was that was kind of the one view. Syncretism. Um, there's another view that is kind of like that that says that, um, uh, especially here, um, Jewish myths when it's coupled with the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Commands there, some suggest that may suggest that you have Pharisaic rules and ascetic uh, ascetic practices. All right, so asceticism, that kind of self-flagellation, beating your body type stuff. Mm, yeah. Those are commingling together uh, in one thing. Um, there are some who say, well, the false teachers from Ephesus must have found their way to Crete. And so you have some connection there. But huh. um, there is one view that you kind of introduced me to about what could be going on here, especially with this connection to the genealogies. Sure, yeah. Genealogies from the books of Moses. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you look at the Masoretic text, which our uh, codex that we go to for the Masoretic text is around one, it's, it's from around 1000 AD. It's called the Codex Leningradensis. And that's one of the texts we use when looking at the uh, scriptures. Uh, another set of texts that we use to look at the scriptures is called the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when we talk about our codexes for the Septuagint, you might recognize some of the codex names like uh, Bizet and Vaticanus and um, Alexandrinus and so forth. Well, those are the codexes we point towards for our earliest copies of the New Testament letters. Well, those codexes also contained our early Greek copies of the Old Testament. They came together in one codex. And then there's also, dun-dun-dun, the Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> which were found just in the 1940s. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls are uh, fragments and, and pieces of things from the Jewish canon, things that were Jewish scripture but not in the canon, things that aren't either, all kinds of writings and all kinds of languages. And uh, often when people compare the Septuagint to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text to the Dead Sea Scrolls, more often than not, the Septuagint copies that we have end up matching the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, a little bit closer than the Masoretic text. Now, why would that be important to this question, Nick? Well, because of the genealogies. Yes. Um, yeah, there's, uh, what's the guy, Canaan, all right, who's inserted what, after our Pakshad in, uh, in Genesis chapter 5? Yeah. I'm reaching for it here. Um, <laughs> but what's interesting is... Um, so that you have this Hebrew text from, what, the 11th century uh -huh. A.D., but then the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text from the 2nd, 3rd century B.C. Yeah, 4th. Over, yeah. over a thousand years difference there. Um, yeah, the, the Septuagint doesn't have and then the Dead Seas, Canaan. The Dead Sea Scrolls were from the 2nd B.C. century, right? 1st, 2nd B.C. century. Right, right. And it, they don't have Canaan. I think that's right. Right, right. Um, they don't have that guy. So 
What it boils down to, and Lenski says it in his commentary, he says um, that these folks, they dealt with the genealogies of the books of Moses, inserted fictitious names, and then spun fabulous stories around these names. Like, for example, you ready for this, Melchizedek is none other than Shem, the son of Noah. (laughs) (laughs) And so... When when Paul says here Jewish myths, Alex, I think he could have been talking about maybe people in his day who were messing around with the genealogical line and trying to spin these fantastic fables, yeah, fantastic stories that well, you know, Melchizedek is actually Shem when he he wasn't <laughs> right. So the timeline and the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls are different and. The, the Samaritan Pentateuch, they're different than the timeline for genealogies uh, in the books of Moses than given in the Masoretic text. And so I'm going to put a link to this video in our podcast description, and it's going to show you why somebody would be motivated to mess with the dates of the genealogy in order to say that Melchizedek is Shem. So I'll, uh, I'll put that link in there, but it's Basically, it'll 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 explain everything to you. It'll blow your mind. <laughs> and it, and what it essentially boils down to is you had um, Jewish leaders who didn't want Jesus to be the Messiah, That's right. and so they would mess with the genealogy in order to make it so that no, no, Jesus, he doesn't, he's not a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was Shem, and Shem he gave uh, through his lineage comes you know the. Uh, Levi, tribe of Levi, and so Jesus was from Judah, therefore Jesus could not have been a priest after the order of Melchizedek because that'd be part of the Levitical priesthood. Right. <sighs> <All Yeah>. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be uh, an interesting uh, video for people to watch, and uh, I think we'll, that'll be it. That wraps it up for Titus chapter 1. Um, if you have any questions at all from this book or any other book, you can send those questions to uh, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, and we'll read your question on the air. Nick, any other thoughts? Search for us in Google Play and on iTunes, Swordplay. That's right. Like us and leave a good review if you find this podcast helpful. Um, we'll tune in next time to Titus Chapter 2. Thanks for tuning in again to an episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.